Hi, everyone, and welcome to another podcast of GaudiMisBez22.com on both YouTube and Podbean podcasts, which you can get on Spotify and Apple as well. I'm joined today by my former colleague, Dr. Rodney Hauser, former chair of the theology department at DeSales University, and now just a full professor extraordinaire there um, and uh, relieved of the duties of department chairman i having been department chair twice and academic dean at DeSales for one year i can attest to the fact that administrative skills i have none <laughs> i i have i still remember and i will get to the topic today folks but i i just have to say i still remember the provost of the university emailing me a month after so-called and the reports were due <laughs> like larry where are the annual reports from your department? What are you talking about? Didn't you get those 10 emails I sent? No, I guess I deleted them. <laughs> well, who is this provost woman emailing me when I don't want to listen to her? Uh, so anyway, that was that was my administrative debacle. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure I never got an annual report in on time during my four years. <laughs> yeah, so. The bane of our existence. Anyway, I want to uh, thank Rodney for being here because he and I are starting a new series. And today is the kickoff of the new series. And the new series is very pertinent, obviously, to my entire blog project and to this broadcast, uh, because the project is going to be he and I are going to systematically go through the documents of the Second Vatican Council and uh, give what we think are the salient features uh, theologically speaking, of each one of those documents. More importantly, uh, to put those documents in both their historical context and to thereby show how they still have an ongoing relevance for us today, perhaps more of an ongoing relevance now uh, than, they, than they did then. Obviously, there are going to be some aspects of the council that are dated, and we will make note of that. Every ecumenical council has dated elements to it very soon after its completion, as soon as the ink is dry on its documents. But if it's a council worth its salt, it's going to have perennial ideas uh, that will pertain to all times and all places. And, and I, Rodney and I both agree that the Second Vatican Council does, especially in, I think, documents like Dei Verbum, Lumen Gentium, Nostra Aetate, Dignitatis Humanae and so on. And we will get into all those. But today, it probably won't be too long of a podcast today. Maybe, maybe not, but I doubt that it will. Because today we're going to be taking a look at the opening speech of John Pope John the 23rd, St. Pope John the 23rd, the speech that he gave to the assembled council fathers at the opening of the Second Vatican Council in 1962, October 11th, 1962, to be exact. So, we are now uh, 61 years past, right? 61 years past the, is my math correct? Yeah, 61 years past the opening of the council. Yeah. Uh, my, how time flies. So anyway, yes, because what, what, Pope, what we get in reading Pope John XXIII's opening speech is kind of a sense of what was in the air. Uh, because obviously, given those times especially, what the Pope's vision of the council was, was probably of supreme importance to everybody that was assembling there. So I'm going to turn it over to Rodney here to get it, to get us started. Uh, what, what, what do you think is the main point that Pope John the 23rd is making in his opening speech about number one, the purposes of the council and number two, flowing from those purposes, how the council is going to proceed. 
Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I actually kind of jotted down what I thought. Go ahead. Do what, yeah. then talk about what you want. I, you know what? <laughs> this is a good caveat. This is not going to be in the form of me interviewing you. Oh, uh, no. This is, yeah. this is going to be the, both of us sort of setting the table here. Okay. So pardon me for trying to treat this as an interview. <laughs> Go ahead and set the table as you see fit, Rodney. Obviously to all the, the listeners, we have not really discussed this too much in advance, <laughs> but we will in the future. But anyway, go ahead. Um, uh, actually, the three things I jotted down really, I think, kind of answer the question you asked, though. <laughs> so we must have read each other's mind. But I I have, I think, these are, I think, the three key things. And we can talk about, of course, the details of these, because each of them, I think, deserves uh, some conversation. But um, the, the, the first, I think, major theme that he drives home is he wants to find a new way of delivering the same message, um, yes. which focuses more on the positive aspects of the faith rather than the errors of modern society. So same message in a new kind of vein, if you will, right? Um, that's the first thing. Uh, second thing, and then part of that is that that more positive tone, <laughs> not the you know hurling invectives. Yeah. Enough, I must sit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second thing is this really delicate balancing act that is going on throughout the entire opening comments between making sure the faith doesn't change, but really finding a way to reach modern men and women. Yes. Right. So so the kind of the, you can tell that he's really trying to walk a little bit of a tightrope there. Like we really do want to be open to conversation with the modern world, but we, we're not going to lose our minds in the process. You know, so there's a kind of Chalcedonian balancing. act. And then third, I, I hope this isn't too many to keep track of, but we, I have them written down so we can we're in our old adult brains. I think we'll be able to do it. Um, I really think that the maybe the central thing and, and this is really, I think, important for the ongoing significance of the council is the emphasis on evangelization. Yes. I was going to bring that up. Good. He wants to bring Christ to the modern world. And that's something I think we need to talk about at some length later, because that that's precisely what I think it got lost in the, in translation, if you will, you know, in the, in the late sixties and seventies. And And we could talk about maybe why or how or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's, yeah. yeah, that's all. Let's start with the, you know, the first one. Yeah. Because people always bring this up, sure. you know, that the the stated goal, it seems to me, that Pope John has laid out is, is important as to what he does not say. What he says is important, but what he doesn't say, I think, is also important. And what he doesn't say is, well, it's high time the church got on board with the times. It's yeah. high time we just started changing some of these crazy medieval doctrines that we've been saddled with all these years. And what we're going to do now is to make a great leaping rupture uh, from the past. It's like a second reformation and a breath of fresh air. And we're just going to strike off as if everything's brand new. Uh, we're going to have a veritable age of reason, like the one they had in France. <laughs> yeah, that's an illusion. Oh, brother, where art thou? Yo, brother, where art thou? Yes. Uh, Ulysses, what was his name? I can't think of uh, Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he didn't say that. Uh, right. And it was very, very, and, and yet there are those after the council, obviously I'm, 
engaging in hyperbolic caricature. But there are were those after the council who even referred to what was going on as a kind of second reformation. Hans Kung referred to it as a kind of second yeah. reformation. Uh, and so there was this hermeneutic of deep rupture that what the council represented was the church finally kind of admitting that, you know, those Protestants had a real point and maybe we should look at it. Right. So he's not saying that. He's saying the sacred deposit of the faith is going to remain the same. Yes. This is why he calls it a pastoral council and not a dogmatic mm -hmm. council, even though it has yep. dogmatic constitutions. Yep. This is something people often forget as well. It has dogmatic constitutions, but, the, but there are no new dogmas. Right. The old ones are a little bit developed. But anyway, so I think that's important that it's just he wants to take the old doctrines and present them in a new way. But that then... Okay, but anyway, does there anything you want to say along those lines, or before? Because I have some questions in my head that I want to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, no, that that's that's absolutely key. I mean, let me just first read what what exactly he says. Mm -hmm. I think it's, yeah, so, so yes, I, it's, you know, I, that's I, why I, I bothered to print it off and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So this is, I think, you know, unfortunately, the, they don't really number the paragraphs in the opening comments. So we're, but it's 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 uh, it's it, I counted the paragraphs, and I think it's paragraph 16, but it's on page seven of the Word on Fire edition. But it, it, it kind of gets to the heart of it. He says, the intention of the council, and this is a direct quote, is to give to the whole no, the world the whole of that doctrine, which notwithstanding every difficulty and contradiction has become the common heritage of mankind, to transmit it in all yeah. its purity, undiluted, undistorted. It is a treasure of incalculable worth not indeed coveted by all, but available to all men of goodwill. I mean, those are some pretty outlandish, in impurity, undiluted, undistorted. I mean, he's not messing around. That's right. <laughs> right. So oh, just yeah. to follow up to your comment then is I think that I don't get any sense from John the 23rd's opening comments that he thinks there's something wrong with the, the contents of the faith that are kind of bootstrapping us from being able to reach people. Uh, I think he thinks that the way we've been going about it, the strategies, that the approach has been prob problematic to some degree, um, but there's nothing at all in the deposit of faith that he thinks we need to slough off in order to make ourselves more flexible, <laughs> you know, to get out in the world and all that. I, I agree. I mean, there's another quote here. He says the greatest right under it says principal duty of the council, yeah. the defense and advancement of truth. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, look at that. The defense and advancement of truth. Yeah. The greatest concern, the greatest concern yep. of the ecumenical council is this, mm -hmm. that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously that doctrine embraces the whole of man, composed as he is of body and soul. And since he is a pilgrim on this earth, it commands him to tend always towards heaven. In other words, towards his supernatural goal and end. So mm -hmm. I think in, in conjunction with what you just quoted, I mean, it could not be clearer. Right. That he does not envision the council as this giant revisionist project of, of changing the deposit of the faith one iota one yeah. shred. Right. It's, it's a question of, like you said, of evangelization and, and efficaciousness. Right. And, and that's why he also says the salient point of this council is not, therefore, a discussion of one article or another of the fundamental doctrine of the church, 
which has repeatedly been taught by the fathers and by ancient and modern theologians, and, and which is presumed to be well known and familiar to all. And he says this for, in line with what we just said. We're not going to be looking very specifically at changing this doctrine or that doctrine. But also, more importantly, I think what he's saying is we're not the council is going to be, in a sense, a reinterrogation of the entirety of the faith to try and give the creed, the basic dogmatic affirmations of our faith, to try and give them a synthetic theological explanation in, in the language that is more in tune with, with modern ears. Right. Yes, that, that's that's exactly it. And that's that, of course, that famous quote where he says um, it's uh, for the for this, this deposit of faith or truths which are contained in our time honored teaching is one thing. The manner in which these are set forth is something else. Right. And that's exactly. that, that's that, of course, that controversial passage that, that you know, people, you know, like them. Oh, to yeah. Yeah. But that that then raises some questions that I think astute and educated listeners, viewers, will will raise in their mind that uh, we can or cannot talk about depending on, on, on what you want here but uh, and we might be prematurely moving forward but there's a, a couple of questions number one isn't yeah. it a bit naive to think that one can take doctrines which were formulated within a particular set of words which after all conjure up not just words but the entire intellectual matrix in which those words find their home yeah. can you just then change the words right and yeah. still expect the kernel of truth to remain the same that that's i think a question what do you think yeah yeah i i, I mean that's a that's a super obviously complicated question of, of kind yeah. of but, but i think it's kind of not a simple either or i i think it's gonna ha have to be the case that some some words even are so much a part of the tradition that we have to kind of hold on to the, 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 the words are kind of essential to the message, you might say. But there are other ways of speaking, I think, that um, aren't essential to, to the message. And, and one of the things I think the council wanted to do was to return to a more existential kind of language found in the Gospels, found right. in the church fathers, uh, which wasn't as... Um, foreign to people's ears as some of the neo-scholastic jargon that had built up over the years. So, okay. so yeah, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. No, you finished. I'm just giving you an enthusiastic thumbs up here because yes. we need to talk about that. Anyway, yeah, and, I, and I think, I think that um, if you think about it, what Thomas Aquinas does in the, in the, in the 13th century is to take patristic theology and refine it in the light of this new Aristotelian terminology, right? Uh, in the terms of four causes, in terms of act and potency, in terms of what well, things like, you know, uh, um, substance and species and, and, and things we're talking about the Eucharist and stuff like that, right? Um, obviously, Aristotle's language wasn't simply foreign to the, the, the patristic tradition, but there was something there was something new about it. But I don't think Thomas felt that using Aristotelian language changed the content of, of the faith, right? If anything, right. I think he thought that it right. might have enriched the, the clarity with which, you know, he, he articulated the faith and things like that. So if that can be done, it, it, I mean, it, it, in the 13th century, it, it, how, why can't it be done in other centuries? And, and perhaps why shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, and without necessarily 
in any way, shape or form compromise, compromising the integrity of the deposit of the faith. Uh, right. And so, yeah, if Aquinas can do it, why can't we? And we can. Uh, so that brings and, and I think we should. I mean, not only can we, but I think it's almost it's it's an obligation of the church to try and speak in a language that people can understand. And I don't think there's any doubt. I think you're absolutely right that what the council sought was a more existential evangelical phraseology of, of the questions, especially, for example, in, in terms of, I think, especially moral theology, which is why the council called for a reform in moral theology, yeah. uh, not to call into question any of the specific moral doctrines of the church, but to maybe take the natural law language of, of our, our classic sort of formulation of these things to maintain the truth of that natural law, yeah. but then, then to translate it into a kind of language of evangelical councils and evangelical biblical living that an average, I mean, after all, I mean, the average Catholic is not going to be sitting around, you know, reading treatises on moral theology in the language of neo-scholastic natural law teleologies and so on. It's just not going to be. Yeah. I, one of the things that's a, a kind of interesting case of, of this, if we could just go one more, you know, maybe a little bit more with this, because I think this is really an important point and an important question. Um, Survey Pinkiers, you know, the, the, the Dominican moral right. theologian in his, that little masterpiece, you know, Catholic uh, morality, uh, the uh, Catholic view or something. Yeah, like, exactly. It's great. One, of course, too. But um, he bemoans the fact that in the manuals, uh, the, the various treatises that are kept together in Thomas are taken apart and put in different parts of the manuals so that the moral theology gets separated from the treatise on grace and also the treatise on happiness. Yes. And what happens when you kind of disembed moral theology from grace and happiness is you end up getting a bunch of obligations, right? It's the same content. I mean, it's not that now the manuals are saying things are wrong that Aquin Aquinas said were right, right? They're not reverse, you know, they're, but, but just yeah. the, that that is no longer in the context of, of say the Beatitudes, which is where Pinkers wants to put it. His first chapter, I think, in that book is on the Beatitudes. I mean, think it about how, yeah, how evangelical that is. So in other words, happy are you if you do these things. Blessed yes. are you if you do these things. So we're not just white knuckling, trying to keep our passions under control. We're, we're being liberated by Christ into a better way of life. Um, and that's- oh, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I remember I studied under Germain Griset, the great late great moral theologian at Mount St. Mary's. And Grisey's system, although different very much from Pinker's, yeah. also begins with the Beatitudes. Yeah. And it is from the Beatitudes that Grisey develops what he calls modes of responsibility, uh, which is uh, part of his own natural law theory and so on. But the point is, yeah, multiple theologians tried to, you know, correct upon this deficit in the, in the manual, the, you know, theologies of the preconciliar era that that I almost wanted to treat, it seems to me, more, and, and this goes to John the 23rd speech, right? It wanted to treat moral theology within the strict confines of this neo-scholastic terminology and language. Yeah. Uh, and, and and not to try and connect it up with the broader theological language of, of grace and salvation and the Beatitudes and all these things. Yeah. That, I, go ahead. Yeah, no, and the thing is, like, if you, if you, if you don't do moral theology in a Christocentric framework, it, it radically changes what we mean by, again, morality. You know, I, I would say that, you know, just to put it simply, 
the disciples first become deeply attracted to the man, Jesus Christ. They're, they yes. sense that he has his act together in a way that they don't, right? And they, they the yeah. reason they want to follow him is because they're like, we want to be more like this guy. Now, he's going to drop some difficult moral teachings on them later, including don't get divorced and remarry. I mean, you know, it's going to be yeah. one of his whoppers. They're going to yeah. be like, whoa, what are, well, be Lord, then who should get married for crying out loud? <laughs> right, right. Wow. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. But they're first on board with the person of Jesus Christ, and then they're ready to embrace his his way of life or at least strive to embrace his way of life um and and yeah and i just think that's one of the things the council is also going to do and of course we see it in john paul ii's moral theology uh redemptor homens is his first encyclical but then even in in, in um uh veritas's splendor he begins with christ and it's it's christic throughout so um yeah. so th those are things that i think we could say hey yeah there's definitely a change in style but it's the same content. We're not, we're now not now saying that things that used to be sins aren't sins. And you know. I would actually go one step further and say, cause what you just said, catalyzed this in my brain is popped in. Uh, not only does it not change the, the Christological, it, 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 it reinforces it. It, it makes it yeah. better. Yes. Uh, you know, yes. the, the, the doctrine is not only not changed by a change of language. Yeah. Uh, the doctrine actually becomes more clear as to what it actually is. Yep. In the broad tradition of the church, which I think, therefore, to get back to John the 23rd speech, I think what is clear in this speech is what he is saying is this, and what later becomes a huge part of the conciliar project is this, and it's the Resource Mont project, which is we're not here, we're not here to renegotiate the fundamental dogmas of the faith. That's not what we're doing. Right. But we are here. We are here to reinterrogate the entire deposit of the faith to see if maybe certain one-sided distortions haven't crept in here yeah. and there that we need to correct. Uh, not not that the church taught error, but that you know it's possible to teach truth, but to teach it so one-sidedly that yeah. things get neglected, yep. that th that things are left out, and yep. we need to put those things back in, yes. so to speak. And yep. one of the things that the neo-scholastic edifice did, despite all of its advances and its clarity and so forth, was it did narrow our field of vision. And it mm -hmm. just kept getting narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower to the point where everybody that was anybody in the theological guild, the people that you and I fell in love with, De Lubach, Balthazar, these guys, were chafing under that oh, yeah. restriction. To such an extent that, that I think in putting John the 23rd speech in its historical context, we can clearly see John the 23rd saying to the to the Louis Bouillers and the Guardinis and the Balthasars and the De Lubacs, hey, dudes, I got your back because I think you were right. And yeah. I, I can only imagine what some of the neo-scholastic roaring stalwarts uh, must have thought as they heard John the Twenty read John the Twenty Third's speech. They could, they must have realized, oh man, our, our reign of, of you know hegemony over everything is about to come to a crashing end. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And and just another thing just popped into my head as you were talking too. Um, it's not so much that when you kind of uh, shift paradigms or whatever you want to call it, that you therefore leave behind. You know, it would be a mistake, I think, to say that now we can put, say, Thomistic or Aristotelian yeah. language behind us. And now we not can... at all. Yeah, not at all. In fact, it's it's um, 
So, so here would be a concrete example. Guys like Robert Sokolowski, you know, use phenomenology or John Paul II, you know, use phenomenology, sure. but they don't use it in such a way that they deny metaphysical realism as some phenomenologists do, right? So that would be a way in which a, a, a Catholic can take that method and, and use it in various ways to enrich our understanding. I mean, the theology of the body, I think, is a classic example yes. of, of a phenomenological approach to the to the human body and all that stuff, but without in any way, shape, or form denying um, natural law, uh, the virtues in Aristotle, you know, the metaphysical realism of Aristotle, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's kind of what we what we mean when we talk about development of doctrine is you know, new ways of thinking that in that bring out aspects of the faith that we haven't seen as well before without simply abandoning, uh, you know, the, the yeah. ways. And, to, you know, to put flesh on those bones. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that strikes me that uh, the phenomenology, say, of a Sokolovsky or a John Paul, what they do, it seems to me, is they take the, the metaphysical realism of, of the classical tradition of classical Catholic metaphysics and so on. Yeah. And they treat those as the sort of basic truths, but then using the phenomenological method, they breathe fire into those equations. Yeah. Those equations now come to life yeah. as we see how the metaphysical reality shines forth as an appearance in our lives. Yes. Okay. That yeah. it's not just, well, we need to peel back the layers of the onion until we get to the metaphysical core of things. Okay. That right. I guess that's important too. Yeah. But that also you see in the very shining to use the splendor of the form of things as yes. those forms unfold in time and history, we see how we actually experience reality corroborating the basic fundamental realism of our, of our metaphysics rather than yeah. rather than replacing it that's right so aristotle's hylomorphism becomes even more hylomorphic yes right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and I, so that's so it's a so it, it, you don't want to give the impression that you can just grab any old thing and use it to articulate the faith i think that's what the progressives in the church are like well we used to do philosophy and now we can do sociology and and you know whatever you know oh yeah um, we used to say transubstantiation now we're going to say transsignification yeah yeah uh, right <laughs> which actually yeah. isn't it changes things because yeah, if you if you read uh, and this was big i don't know if it still is but in the 70s and the 80s when i was being trained in seminary uh, all the rage was transignification yeah which is that uh, following upon ronner's theology of the real symbol and all that that uh, we're not going to we're not going to dwell on substance and accidents and the change in the substance from bread to the body of christ we're going to focus on the fact that Christ is now truly present because the significance of that bread has changed for us. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah, yeah. So God, Jesus is really present in that bread because we think he's present in that bread. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's trans. I'm not doing that complete justice. So please yeah. don't attack me if you're a trans signifier or whatever. <laughs> but, um, but that's the gist of it. And that's a yes. kind of false phenomenology that yeah. repudiates metaphysical. Exactly. Realism. Right. Right. It's, it's a, it, you end up replacing a bad philosophy with a good one um, rather than trying to refine a good one, you know, or develop yes, a what John the 23rd is talking about is <clears throat> okay. Let's keep the truth of transubstantiation. The yeah. bread and wine truly become the body and blood of the resurrected Christ, full divinity and humanity yes. and so on. Right. Um, 
but maybe we can find also not to replace the word transubstantiation. Maybe we can find ways of explaining that, you know, that that actually make it come to life, not yeah. to deny to transubstantiation, but to make it seem less arid, less yes. scholastic, less rationalistic. Like yeah. I said, it's something that breathes fire into that equation to yeah. make it come to life and seem real. Um, and there are, you know, I mean, look at Sokolovsky's book on the Eucharist, which That's is exactly a, a case in point. He's not denying real presence at all. In fact, no, he, he makes it even more believable, in my opinion. But he does it by using, you know, phenomenological ways of doing it. And I love the stuff about, you know, non-competitive transcendence. And therefore, like, yeah. you know, the real the, Jesus being in the Eucharist doesn't crowd out the species precisely because they're not occupying the same ontological plane, you know? It's exactly. Like, right. Yeah. So and, and, really and from an orthodox end, I think of writers like Alexander Schmemann, yeah, in, yeah. in his book for the life of the world, which I have quibbles with, but I've used in class as well. Yeah. Uh, the main quibble with Schmemann, of course, he still has this anti-Roman chip on his shoulder yeah. that he, yeah. only hates Aquinas. <laughs> God, does he yeah, hate yeah. it? Like yeah. so many Orthodox. But if you can get past that, <laughs> I mean, there's there's a great, powerful oh. theology of the Eucharist and the sacraments in general in there. Absolutely. Yes. So I think I mean, I think that's I think we've done a pretty good job with that first uh, point. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about. I I find this to be more Christocentric than I remembered it being when I last. I read thought it. the I, same thing, Hauser. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Uh, do you? Do you? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I remember. I I, I have not read this speech of John the Twenty Thirds in maybe thirty years. <laughs> I mean, I, I probably read it in grad school or seminary or something. So <laughs> yeah. I, 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 when you, when we agreed that we we're going to do this, I yeah. printed it off and I, and I thought, okay, I read, I reread it this morning and underlined certain passages. But what really leapt out at me was how Christocentric it actually is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, I don't have any specific. Maybe you have some specific uh, quotes that that you could toss out. But it was just for me an overall general impression. Uh, that Pope John was fully on board with the idea that the that the upcoming council was going to really be Christocentric, in 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 very very many ways. Absolutely. So the the key paragraph that that jumped out at me actually is 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 just, right just like five paragraphs in or four paragraphs in. It's it's the section called "To Be with Christ or Against Him." Yes. And it's worth, I think we could. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but there are just a couple of things. Um, this is a really really um, almost Bartian or dialectical kind of statement, which I was like, wow. Um, he says, because the whole of history and of life hinges on the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we're going to talk about it. Then That's he right. says, then he throws out an either or, which I love, you know, what Catholics will do this occasionally, right? Uh, either men anchor themselves in him and his church and thus enjoy the blessings of light and joy, right order and peace, or they live their lives apart from him. Many positively oppose him and deliberately exclude themselves from the church. The result can only be confusion in their lives, bitterness in their relations with each other, and the savage threat of war. Oh, man. <laughs> Did the Pope read Stanley Hauerwas? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, holy. 
that that's it's it's got that whole Anabaptist kind of uh, Yoder esque yeah. Hawawasi and esque. Sorry, it's got that cutting edge to it, you know. It does. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm I'm joking a bit, but truly, right. yeah. it's got what I would call it is it's one of the things that I thought was greatly lacking in neo-scholastic theology prior to the council, and I think uh, the Racehorse Mont guys agreed, right, was not just a Christocentric emphasis, but to draw out of that Christocentrism a yeah. prophetic message for our times. Absolutely. What is often lacking in neo-scholastic language is, is in some ways, and I think you see this in Peggy, you certainly see it in Balthazar, mm-hmm. is the recognition that a prophetic critique of the world requires a certain lyrical, poetic, sapiential approach to, to doing theology that does not fit neatly within the confines of a so-called scientific theology of scholastic deductions leading to certain conclusions. Right. You need things to be evocative, provocative by being evocative. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's why, I mean, I think, we, you know, if we were going to just give a shout out to Baltazar, why begin with beauty, right? Right. It's, it's, it, it, right. right? So, so we're going to begin with this because there's something absolutely crucial about the appearance of this guy christ in history and this i mean very concrete specific moment in history and a very specific guy doing very specific things that specificity historical specificity combined with the fact that he's the meaning of history that's where things oh wow get super interesting. that really leapt out at me right that he is yeah. the meaning of history history let's right? take that seriously yeah and how can we not take that seriously as christians right that that christ is the meaning of history the center of history the fulcrum upon which all of history turns and the yeah. council therefore is about that Exactly. And this is where I think this is where I think the biggest failure of the progressive interpretation of the council is. Yes, because it's 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 not just that it misses a nuance here of the council, but just bear with me for a second. As soon as the council, the ink is barely dry on the on the documents of the council, it's it's kind of brought back to the United States in the late 60s and immediately the overwhelming majority of the theological guild begin to embrace a kind of absolute religious pluralism, yes. right? Which, which treats Jesus Christ as one religious messenger, one revelation of God among many others, all, you know, more or less equally yes. the Muhammad, uh, the Buddha, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, as soon as you play that game, Christ ceases to be the meaning of history. It, the only way that you can still salvage Christ maybe being the meaning of history is if you basically say the way he treated other people is the way we should treat. You reduce him to an no, ethic, to an ethic, universal ethic. And then, of course, you can get it from the Buddha. You can get it from other, you know, other figures as well. So all that becomes is orthopraxis over orthodoxy. Absolutely. Right. So so it no longer becomes an urgent thing to defend the fact that Jesus Christ is uniquely God and man, right? I mean, there have been articles by the dozens written by progressive Catholic theologians basically saying, let's get over all that homoousios stuff. It's a bunch of metaphysical garbly goop. That's not what the gospel is. That's not bicker about who incarnated who, eh? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, flat out basically denials of the incarnation. I mean, when I was in grad school, I had to read the two books by 
uh, Sheila Beek's uh, Jesus and Christ. Oh, and it's me just, too. I mean, it's and of course he doesn't just come flat out and say Jesus isn't God, but boy, oh boy, it's it's the most attenuated Christology you're ever going to get your hands on. Um, and I it treats, how, oh, and it treats oh, every awful. latest ersatz theory in the historical critical exegesis of the Bible, right? Especially the New Testament as as absolute scientific yeah, proof. Right, exactly. You know, the exegetes yeah. now tell us that Jesus was actually, uh, you know, a, a blind. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a, a blind Hindu. I, from, from I, I, I can't think of identifiers anymore without triggering some kind of <laughs> sort of. <laughs> right. right. Well, you're a you're a phobic this or a phobic that. Uh, yeah. But you get the point that Jesus yes. was just some sort of weirdo that certainly not God incarnate or whatever. Exactly. Right. Uh, and you just yeah. Uh, this is so to bring it back to John the twenty third. This is why right. it's so important to go back to the source of the council. We can, we're going to talk later on as we get through this series, whether or not the council remained true to this ideal. I think it did. You yeah, think yeah, it yeah. did. Yeah. But here we are right off the get-go, Pope yep. John saying Christ is the center of history, yep. and we want to find a way via the vehicle of this council of right. getting everyone in the world to see that he is the meaning of history. I'm going to look at my blog, Gaudium Espes 22. Section 22 says, in reality, it is only in the mystery of the word made flesh that the mystery of man truly becomes clear. Absolutely. And yeah. John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla had a hand in that verse getting in there, as did De Lubach. Right. And it is the very expression of what John the 23rd is saying here in this paragraph. Exactly. And this kind of then links up this issue with the whole emphasis on evangelization, because what John the 23rd is saying here is either human beings are going to anchor themselves to Christ or they're not. There's yes. a real strong either or here. And I think yes. that's important because we we often are fond of saying that Catholics are both and people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true. I mean, both Jesus is fully God and fully man, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's um, yeah, yeah, he's got a fully human nature and a fully divine nature, all these both ends, but faith and works, uh, but there are times where the church lays down the gauntlet and says, You're, he who is not for me is against me. That's very evangelical language, but it's not foreign to the language of the church. And uh, I, I'm afraid it's become foreign to the language of the church, uh, but it, but it, it but certainly shouldn't be. Um, well, I agree. And would you agree, too, that in some ways this is also, once again, a kind of mild criticism of the, of the neo-scholastics of that time? Because there, there was a tendency, I think, to in in terms of the idea of what the church's mission to the world is, uh, yeah. in, in, especially in, in not in terms of evangelizing so much as in the political sphere, that natural law you, you're going to submerge Christ un, under this veneer, of, and you still see this among certain neocon Catholics, yeah, who treat natural law neo scholastic language as this yeah. this abstract neutral language that any right. person of reason yes can access and right. we can therefore have this common ground in the middle now in theory that's not completely false but where it falls flat is in the realization what, what natural law is our human mind's participation the recognition of the divine law which means natural law language is only going to appeal to number one people who believe in god and right. number two, people who believe in a creator God. And right. number three, people believe that that creator God left vestigial signs of himself in the natural world that yeah. number four, our reason can detect. Yes, <laughs> that, yeah. that's a lot. That's a lot. 
and, all of and, that stuff is, is almost universally rejected by, by mainstream <laughs> academia. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, so uh, yeah, exactly. So they would be more willing to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any of the stuff you just talked about. <laughs> That's right. All right. And so not that natural language is bad or wrong or whatever, but it's you're, you're running before you learn how to walk. You're putting yeah. the cart before the horse. Yeah. And this is what Pope John is saying here. Unless we put Christ first, and that's this yes or no, unless you're with Christ, you're not going to understand anything else we have to say. Yeah. You're not going to line up and say, oh, please, church, teach us about sex. Oh, please, church, teach us about economics. Unless you first accept the basic Christological foundations of what it is that we're about here. Yeah. And can I say something that I think is really interesting here then? Because our argument, I think, is going to be because we're on the same, totally on the same page about this, is that there are two, you know, kind of broad uh, sides of, of of interpreting the council that both get it wrong, you know, in, in different directions. Of course, yes, including those people who now want to deny that the council was a valid council and all that stuff. I mean, that's you know, all that. But but the but what's interesting is what they have in common, and I think you just put your finger on it. There's a sense in which the preconciliar church had a tendency to talk about the Trinity and Jesus and the supernatural stuff in the walls of the church. But then when they went into the world, that was translated into kind of a purely natural law thing. So you're, 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 and which, which again, you totally nailed it. Modern philosophy rejects all of the premises that make natural law even comprehensible. Yeah. To I mean, you can't, you know, yeah, yeah, obviously, right? So it didn't work, but it was also a bad strategy because what you're failing to do is take Christ to the world, right? You're 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 kind of like protecting the 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 dogmas of the church inside the church. You would make sure that we have you know, we are Chalcedonian orthodoxy. But what good does it do you if you don't take it into the world? Which is why John Paul John the twenty third says we we don't going to treat this thing as a museum piece. I thought that was a really interesting thing that that he I, I can't remember where he said it, but I remember reading that it's it's not. Um, it, it, we're not going to treat this thing as if it's this fragile relic that we can't take outside the walls of the church or it's going to get broken or hurt or something like that. Yeah. Taking Christ into the world is going to be a risk, right? There, there, because you're going to get the, you're going to be brushing arms with the world and there's no way you're not going to, you're not going to come back touched by that thing. But that was that fear, I think. So on the one hand, you see the neo-scholastics, let's keep Christ in here, we're going to do natural law out there. But let's talk about progressives, which I think in a sense do almost the identical thing. They are willing to participate in the ritual, right? They're willing to, you know, <laughs> say the creed and, and all that stuff and blah, blah, the blah. The cultus. Yeah, they, they, that's exactly right. They're, 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 all that stuff can happen. But as soon as they get out and start, quote, dialoguing with modern human beings, they quit talking about Jesus Christ almost altogether. It's all social justice, it's ending racism, ending homophobia, you know, all of which are noble causes to be sure. But the unwillingness to talk about Christ in the world is something that I would say in some way, and I don't want to throw the neoscholastics totally under the bus because they, they wouldn't they wouldn't be as extreme. But there's something in common with the two. And what makes what makes Vatican II radical is you don't have to choose between being Christocentric and open to the world. You, you want to be both. You want to be yeah. Christocentric in your openness to the world. 
And that's a what, tough, that's a what was Dave, what was David Schindler's uh, thing from the heart of the church, from the center of the church to the heart of the world or the other way. Or, I can never remember which is from the heart of the church to the center of the world. Or, yes. Yeah. yeah. That, that and, book is so brilliant on this, you know, that, that oh, especially I love the chapter on holiness and saints and, and time, time and eternity, yeah. uh, where he talks about T.S. Eliot. And it's just it, it to me, it's it's the complete distillation of David L. Schindler's pure genius. Uh, yes. That that yeah. that whole section on time and eternity. But so I recommend it to our listeners, you know, David L. Schindler's book. Uh, it, no, please help me. Heart of the world. Let me, let heart, me see. from the heart of the world, from the heart of the church to the center of the world. Bam. There we go. Yeah. A, a, an heart, advertisement for a, in big the heart of the world. Yeah. Center of the church. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Part of the world, That's center it. of the church. All right. it is, Big Dave. Uh, it's just, I think it's a masterpiece at negotiating that, the, the two yes. you know, schools on either side that, that kind of miss that Christos, Christocentric emphasis. Um, and which I think is important for people to understand as we go forward. And, and, and in the future, we, we decided to do this kind of an off the cuff kind of thing, this conversation. But in the future, you will assign each other, you know, you'll do this part of day of Arabum, I'll do a different part of day of Arabum. We'll, we'll offer up some bullet points and then, and, and then uh, our, our insights and then, and then talk about it so that it's, it, I want it to be really systematic and how we go about and lay this out for people because there's a need for this and there's a need for it precisely because the council was a resource mont council. I don't care what the progressives say. I don't care what the trads say. This council does not represent a massive rupture with the past. And John, the 20, third makes this clear in his opening speech it represents certain my as John, uh, benedict says certain discount small micro discontinuities for the sake yeah. of a deeper continuity yes. and that needs to be driven home but that deeper continuity takes place within the theological interpretive matrix of communio resourcement theology and and so as we move forward i i just think it's we've just brought up david l schindler in the context of discussing what it is that the Pope is doing here in this document. And, yeah. and I just want to drive home to people. There is no way to understand the council properly. No right. way to understand what Pope John was up to. No way to understand what John Paul was up to. No way to understand what Pope Benedict was up to, unless you understand the central importance of communio theology, resource mod theology. They're not entirely identical, but I often use. And even to a certain extent, Pope Francis has elements of this resource mod Yep. Uh, within him, he was very at smitten. his best. Yep, at his best. I mean, yes. we have our criticism, but we're not going to get into that. But at his best, yeah, Pope Francis, I think, truly understands the need to translate the gospel message into evangelical patterns of, of thinking and 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 speaking. Yep, you know, and absolutely. That, I mean, he he's been very very consistently beating the evangelization and mission drum. From the yeah. first day of his papacy up until yesterday's newspaper, practically, he he just gave a talk on it recently about that we need to get out there and and evangelize, and all of his progressive supporters. I I wonder what they think of that because again, I, I many many progressive Catholics that I know simply honestly do not see the need to convert people to Christ because their belief is a uh, there are other religious traditions that can get you salvation anyhow, or b. Um, it's a world of grace. If, if you're helping the poor and and feeding the hungry, you're you're already a Christian, you know, right? So so it's, it's um, true, right? So so it's so, a yeah. more 
more interested in your political positions than they are in your in whether or not you you believe in Christ or not. But but Francis has not gotten the memo on that. He's very much still an old school guy who thinks. And even, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of frustrating with him a little bit because he he courts these people that I don't think think like him, right? And we've talked about this. You've talked about this yes, a lot. Yes. But he but he doesn't do it the way they do it. Like a, a recent comment he made about homosexuality, for instance, I think was really interesting. He said he's when he talks about these things, he's thinking about individual homosexuals who feel um, that the church hates them or something like that. And right. he wants to make sure that they understand that no, we're 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 all sinners, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're, there no, we, we have no special gripe about this particular sin or, or whatever. And then he says, so we want to make sure that they feel welcome into the church and so that they can begin the, you know, kind of the conversion process. And he says, and of course, they have to know that once they come in, there are rules that have to be followed. But then he said something really interesting. He goes, I'm not talking about, I think he called it the homosexual movement or something like right. that. I forget the exact phrase he used. But what he's saying there, in other words, is we aren't going to let the LGBTQ plus community tell us how to think about human sexuality which he often refers to as uh, ideology, right? Right. That's not what this is about. This is about converting one by one individual people who struggle in this area. That's evangelical, right? That, that, that's, but I, I don't think that any of the people, unfortunately, that he's getting advice from on these issues, I don't think they think of it that way. I don't think they think that, the, that, that, that there needs to be a conversion. Or if well, they I do, agree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um... Uh, well, well might say I, they do, but you know, uh, yeah, well, yeah. I'm not totally on board with that analysis, but that's, that's, uh, okay. okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. simply because I think you're right yeah. in terms of simply interpreting his words. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what they mean. Yes. But on the other hand, he empowers that wing of the church. Yeah, I know. Yep. Yep. That's exactly, that's the point I'm trying to make. And he, and he made Father James Martin a voting member of the synod. Yep. He granted Sister Gramic of New Ways Ministry a private audience. Yep. He didn't make anybody from Courage a voting member of the Synod. And no. he certainly didn't write yep. glowing letters of support, as he did with Sister Gramic, to members of Courage. Right. Uh, and so I'm not saying this to undercut what you just said. Right. Because to, when we, we don't want to go down this, this rabbit hole of Pope yep. Francis. Right. Only I, but I do want to agree with you to this extent. I yeah. think Pope Francis is, to a great extent, deeply influenced by the Resourcement yeah. thinkers. Yep. I don't think he's influenced. I, I, I don't think he's influenced so much by modern communio thinkers. No, who he seems to have repudiated. But enemies. I think, he, yeah, yeah, they're his enemies. But I think he does appreciate the Guardinis, the De Lubacs of the church, because I think he appreciates what they were up to, what sure. their what their theological and therefore their pastoral project was. And yeah. that's, you know, all uh, all discussions of Pope Francis aside, that that's yeah. simply the point here that we, we now have this unbroken succession of popes mm. who all sort of agree in one fashion or another, some yeah. more strongly than other, that that is the interpretive lens of the council. The Christocentric reading. Yeah, that that Christocentric reading of the council is 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 the way yeah. forward. And Pope yep. Francis reiterates that completely in what he writes. We'll get maybe later on into what he does, but yeah, what yeah, he yeah. writes, what he writes is completely orthodox and completely in line with everything that we're, that we're talking about here. I think this is probably not the first time in history that a Pope has 
when he's when he's speaking as a pope, he he has he he toes the line. His personal opinions, mm. you know, may not be up to what he has. He he says as pope, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, there yeah. were definitely Arian sympathizers, you know, in the early church that that you know never officially said that Christ was not homoousios with the Father, but you know, um, but probably leaned that way, maybe you know, or thought it wasn't that big of a deal or something. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Do we have time to talk about one other thing? That we I, do. I mean, we got off this Pope Francis tangent. Let's get back on course here. Just, yeah, uh, just, go, yeah let's talk about it. Yeah. One, one thing that I think that is going to come up probably again and again, in any official document of the church, there's always going to be that which is timeless and and therefore, you know, perennial, you know, for the, for the good of church. And then that which is very much bound to its time and stuff like that. And I think those we're going to have to talk about those things going forward because we're going to see a lot of that, especially I think at Gaudium at Spes, there, there's some kind of serious optimism that comes out in some of those things that just this are is what we, yeah. Yes, go ahead. That, that's what I wanted to talk about. This this yeah. optimistic view of modernity. Yeah. And there's one moment in the in the in the thing here that I I thought uh what's well, yeah. even called that a little section is called the uh the the reason for optimism. But he um he says something like the reason maybe that we don't need to just, you know, excoriate the modern world for being for all of its errors is that he says just about everybody in the world now realizes those errors. He says something to that effect. I, I It's page eight. I, I should probably try to find it. I don't want to put words in the poor guy's mouth. Um, so let me see if I can find um, you conjure it up. And while you're doing so, I'm just going to say you you and I are clearly on the same page because I wanted to end this conversation with precisely perhaps my one critique of yeah. this speech. And it's also a critique I have of the council in general, and that'll come out in our discussions. And that to me, it's part of the datedness of, the, of some aspects of the council is I think it's overly optimistic about, uh, you know, the good, the inherent deep reservoir of goodness that one finds in the modern world. And I think we have to remember the context of the times. This is not even 20 years after the end of the World War II. Right. Uh, yes. And of course, the Korean War was just 10 years prior and the height of the Cold War on nuclear, this, that and the other thing. Yes. I, I, I just think there was this strong and powerful belief by people who lived through. Remember, these are Europeans mostly who lived yes. through the horrors of World War II. Yep. Had this great hope in liberal democracy. I mean, you yes. see it in Maritan. You yeah. you. The, their, John for, Murray. their whole support for liberal Western style democracy, the United Nations, that finally, finally, we have put this kind of garbage behind us. Yes. The, the World War II really was the war to end all wars. Yeah, we've got this yep. Cold War thing, but so far it's a Cold War. Yeah, and yeah. maybe we can really work our way around that somehow. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I just think there was an over optimism in there. But anyway, I, I'm sure you found the quote by now. Yeah, yeah, and just to, just the other thing is just statistically, church attendance was at an all time high in in the West yes, uh, yes. post World War II. So you can see why Murray would think that liberalism provides this fertile ground for religiosity, not only to not go away but to flourish. You know, and Mary Tan and, and these people. You can, which is why yeah, in 1958, article by Joseph Ratzinger, the New Heathenism in the Church in Hochschild, he says that all those metrics and statistics of outward church. Uh, strength in terms of mass. It goes, it's only proof that statistics lie. <laughs> Good for him. So he Because he said it. there really is a deep rot in the church and, and it's killing us from within. He knew that already in 58. 
anyway. Flannery O'Connor, you know, it was writing these kinds of things very early. So on I guess my point would be, and we'll get to the quote in a second, which is there were voices in the church. I mean, you go all the way back to Bernanos in 1936, Diary of a Country Priest, talking yep. about my parish is bored, bored yep. stiff like all the rest of them. And there's not a darn thing we can do about it. You yep. find Blondell already, Peggy, others talking about the rot within the church. Dorothy Day, Peter Moran talking about the rot within the church. Yeah. Guardini was talking about it. Balthazar recognized it. De Lubach recognized it. Bouyer, Ratzinger then recognizes it. So yeah. in, in some sense, there were those in the resource Mont camp that were yeah. ringing the alarm bells that maybe modernity is not the hand fits into a glove kind of thing right. that some post-war ecclesiastics wanted to think that it was. Yes. Uh, and I therefore it's in other words, I don't want to over historicize and contextualize these statements to such an extent like, well, of course, they had an optimistic view. There was a choice that was made there yeah. to opt for something sure. uh, that I think was a poor choice. But anyway, you go ahead. Yes. Um, so he he says that uh, he's explaining why we don't need to keep going down that path of just, uh, you know, condemning erroneous teaching. He says, but all such error is so manifestly contrary to rightness and goodness and produces such fatal results that our contemporaries show every inclination to condemn it of its of its own of its own accord. In other words, yeah, they're, yeah. they're with us on this. They realize how evil yeah. certain modern errors are. But here's what's interesting. I mean, obviously, that has not played out. And if you think about the situation we're in in, in the in the modern world, the aspects of liberalism that is alive in both of our parties, the right and the left, yeah, are growing together. If you if you if you get my drift, in other words, what we're getting in modern politics is the worst of the right and the worst of the left. And yes. all that means is that liberalism is getting more and more aggressive, dysfunctional, unmoored, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, I, I watched just five minutes. I don't know why uh, I, I was looking at the news this morning. I watched about five minutes of the Republican debate uh, that oh, I get last night. Larry, it's hard to imagine four more ridiculous human beings on a stage saying more ridiculous and less interesting and less relevant. I mean, yeah. it's just a it's a it's a it's a mess. Right. And. So what, what my point would be something like the fact that we're getting increasingly gross inequality between the salary of a CEO and the average employee in, in a corporation, uh, the idea that, that CEOs can just come in to take over a business and just got the thing, get fire all sorts of people, et cetera, et cetera, meanwhile, giving themselves millions and millions and millions of dollar raises. Um, I don't that, that's the kind of stuff the church was complaining about in the 19th century, which it sounds like John the 20th century. Well, everybody knows that stuff's bad now. Well, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm not sure of that. And then, of course, the left. Oh, my gosh. Right. It's I mean, it's it's yeah. it's one new sexual perversion championed a month. I mean, right. And it's and it's crazy. And we can see that it's doing all sorts of damage to people. And yet they're still, you know, talking about liberal, you know, setting people yeah. 
these old barriers. This is why, you know, Bill Bill Clinton was, in my opinion, the the manifestation of the worst of the worst, because he he was the so-called new Democrat, which was essentially let's have abortion on demand, sexual licentiousness in the White House and outside of the White House. All right. Let's just uh, let's completely embrace all the perversions of the sex revolution. And let's be economic conservatives and capitalists and corporatists and all that kind of stuff. And 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 now both parties are like this. I mean, look, we knocked down Roe v. Wade and every single time it's put up for a referendum in, in, in a supremely red state like Kansas. It said, no, we want abortion on demand still. Ohio just said, no, we want abortion on demand still. That's right. All right. And 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 so, yeah, it gives the lie to all this Republican BS of family yeah. values and blah, blah, blah. No, what you so, you know, we can't afford Medicare and Social Security. We need to cut back because we got deficits. But yeah. apparently in the early 2000s, 2000 one through 2011, we we spent one trillion dollars on various wars. Now, no one ever spoke about how we couldn't afford those. Right. No, no, we, can we can't afford to invade and nation build in Afghanistan and Iraq. We can't afford to maintain secret prisons all over the world. I mean, right. we can't afford that anymore. No one talked like that. Right. But in the new political regime, we can't afford health care for everybody, but we can afford endless war making. Absolutely. That, that is the state that we are in now, you know, and yeah, and, and so you are correct. Go ahead. So bring it back home. Yeah. Just my final final point then would be that it's, um, you know, a lot of people will bemoan the fact that David L. Schindler spent so much time railing against liberalism um, as if he had kind of turned his back on the optimism of the council and stuff like that. But I actually think that what uh, it, it you you can't go on whistling Dixie when you see how gross Again, we're not just talking about left liberals. We're talking about right liberals. He he, a pox on both their houses was his approach, all the and consistently so. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, it, yeah, the the problems in liberalism are just getting exponentially worse. It each one is different in each party, right? And that's uh, so. I think yeah. that's something that going forward, you know, as you retrieve the council, um, that is one of the more historically dated things I think that we're going to see in the council. I think so. Almost like, you know, liberalism's not that bad. And I think that to a great extent, it's reactionary, uh, that yeah. it's not so much a message for those outside the church as a message for those inside. We need, yeah, right. we continue to need to remind ourselves yeah. how deeply scarring the, that period of the modernist crisis, Pius X going forward, the yeah. Second Vatican Council, how right. scarring it was to yeah. priests and theologians within the church who could not breathe, who were absolutely right. suffocated, who yeah. if you even hinted that things like historicity and subjectivity were objects of theological study, you were right. automatically put on the index and, oh, and yes. silenced and called a modernist and that kind of stuff. And so I think here the Pope is saying, we're not going to talk like that anymore. He's right. he's. He's throwing shade at that whole idea. And so he doesn't want to go on record. He doesn't, in other words, want to completely follow through in his provocation of Christ as the center of history by then applying that to a wholesale, massive prophetic critique of the modern world, because that would then be that would undercut the the strategic short term goal that he has as pope to cut the legs out from underneath the holy offices attempts to silence people who who weren't completely neo-scholastic. And that's my that's kind of my take on this sort of naive. And so to me, it's sort of internal ecclesial reaction against something. 
that then spills out into this silly kind of optimism about the nat- about the modern world that I think yeah. is very unfortunate. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a that's a, that's a that's a really good point. And um, I mean, I kind of I think that's all I had. I just wanted to touch on that last. Uh, yeah, uh, well, it was an important thing to touch upon because yeah. the, the 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 two criticisms of the speech that one often hears from traditionalist types is that the effort to translate the deposit of the faith out of neo-scholastic terminology into other forms of theological discourse is fraught in its essence with a kind of revisionism that that is set up for disaster. I think that's wrong. But then the other criticism, of course, is that there was this naive optimism about the modern world that one sees in this speech and then in certain places of the council. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that criticism has some legs to it, so long as it's then not used to simply say, and that's why the council is all just a lot of BS. But you see these fault lines, and we're going to see this in Gaudium et Spes, I think, especially, which is the document that deals with the church in the modern world. Like the first half of Gaudium et Spes is really Christological, very Christocentric, yeah. sounds like that Christ is the center of history and everything. And then the second half of Gaudium et Spes sounds like it was written by a different person. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think we, I think if I'm not mistaken, I'll check this before we do our, before we do our podcast on it. I'm going to say that the two people were Daniel Liu and Fuchs. <laughs> yeah, it could very, very well be. That kind of would explain the whiplash. <laughs> what people tend to forget, let's talk about this a little bit as a setup for the thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if the council fathers all sat down at their desks inside St. Peter's with, you know, a, a pen and pencil and said, here's what I think, and then submitted it. And then it was considered. No, there was there were theological commissions headed by Monsignor oh. Gerard Phillips. Uh, and and others uh, that were tasked with developing this. And then obviously at the very beginning of the council, there was the famous rejection of the various schemes that had been developed by the Holy Office, which were just complete reiterations of neo-scholastic language. And so essentially the Holy Office just wanted the, the, there were people in Rome, according to Seawald's biography of Ratzinger, who thought the council would be over with after one session and everybody (laughs) would go home, that everybody would get, yeah, a thumbs up to all of these pre-done schemes, schemata, right. and, yeah. and then everybody would go home. And that was our response to the modern world would be to simply double down on all this Baroque Catholic stuff. All right. <laughs> and then, of course, the Council Fathers said, yet, no, yeah. send it back. And Ratzinger had a big hand in that, the speech, yeah. the Genoa speech of Cardinal Frings that he wrote and so on. Yeah. So yeah. then we get these theological commissions that then develop all these new schemata. And they went through version after version yeah. after version, schemata <laughs> after schemata. Yeah. And so well, the point I'm trying to make is your suggestion that Gaudium et Spes was written by Daniel Liu and then by Joseph Fuchs is not simply a tongue-in-cheek speculation. It's yeah. rooted in the fact that there were certain people on the Theological Commission that were tasked with writing certain sections of the schemata in particular. And then once they wrote the sort of boilerplate document, they brought it to the commission and then everybody would talk about it. And then there would be revision. And then it went to the floor of the council and bishops suggest Mm -hmm. amendments and other amendments and send it back and so on. So that's, that's the process by which we got these conciliar documents. And, and so it was, was, as we're going to see when we get to talking about Gaudium et Spes, I think, that you're onto something important here, uh, <laughs> that Jean Danielou, one of the leading resource theologians, one of its founders, actually, 
was probably responsible in some ways, along with perhaps De Lubach for the first the half. Christocentric bits. The more Christocentric <laughs> bits, is right. But anyway, yeah. we've been talking now for about an hour and 20 minutes. So uh, we should wrap this up. And I want to repeat uh, uh, that we will be in, in we'll probably be talking about what are we going to talk about next day? Verboom, I imagine. That makes sense, right? It's a, yeah. yeah. And that was the one, of course, that you were just kind of referring to that first schema that came out was a big disappointment to Ratzinger. And uh, yeah, and, you know, that, I mean, we could sense. we could deal with these in chronological order. We could, you know, obviously we're talking out loud here, folks. We Rodney and I, have, I mean, off camera, we'll talk about this some more. But we could maybe begin with Sacrosanctum Concilium because that was the first document to come out. But I would rather not. I would rather deal with them more in a sense of a theological uh, progression from Revelation. I think so too. I, I like that. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we'll deal with Dave Verbum next. And it might take two or three episodes to unpack each one of these. Sure. Each one of these documents, uh, because it might be hard in, in a one hour conversation or to completely unpack Dave Verbum. And maybe even down the road, we could have some other guests come on to discuss some of these things as well. Awesome. I'd love if, if Robert Imbelli is listening to get Father Imbelli's input, especially on Dei Verbum, uh, yeah. since he's an expert on that. But anyway, uh, th thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, hopefully uh, you can easily go uh, and Google, you know, Pope St. John's opening speech to the uh, Council to Vatican II. Download it. Read it for yourselves. Uh, I think uh, you would find it most enlightening. So I want to thank Rodney for coming on. It'll probably be in a couple more weeks, maybe after Christmas now, before we get to Dei Verbum, more than likely. So uh, stay tuned. Thanks a lot.